Good morning. Let me invite you up front to go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible with you, one of our ushers would be glad to bring you a Bible. This is yours to have and to keep. Just encourage you to raise your hand uh, even now, and one of our ushers will find their way to you with a Bible. Again, it's our gift to you. Turn to the book of Acts, and as you're making your way to Acts, which is uh, just a little more than halfway through your Bible, right after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then you've got Acts, or Acts of the Apostles. As you're turning there, let me encourage you that as we jump into today's spiritual discipline, week 11 out of 12 weeks, if you haven't been able to be a part of all 11 weeks, including today, up until this point, or if the Lord has moved so tremendously in your life like he has mine, uh, you have an opportunity to go back and watch these messages in one of two ways. The first is that you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. And you have access to all the sermons that we've preached here all the way back to 2016. The second is that you can go to our website, countrybible.org, and click the media tab, and that will take you to our sermons as well. Today, week 11, we are in an opportunity, I guess we are in a message, an opportunity to share the spiritual discipline of community. The spiritual discipline of community. And I thought it would be fitting to help us understand a working definition of community. So I have pulled this description or definition from a dictionary online. And community is given five different definitions or examples of one definition, if you will. The first is that community is a group of people that are living in the same place or having a specific characteristic in common. The second example or definition of community is a group of people living together in one place, especially one practicing common ownership. We're going to learn about that today. The third definition given is that community is a particular area or place where people consider they gather together all the inhabitants. It's a location, proximity. The fourth definition is that it's a body of nations or states unified by common interests, which we're also going to investigate today as well. And finally, the working definition from the dictionary online is that community is a follow, it's a fellowship rather, with others as a result of sharing common attitudes, interests, and goals. In the interest of our message today, the summarization of this that I've come up with is a community can be summed up as common unity, common unity. I got thinking about community and was quickly aware that there's an adversary that keeps us from common unity. There's an enemy actively waging war against experience, authentic and true and intentional community. And that adversary is consumerism. The enemy to community or common unity is consumerism. And so I took the internet and I began to research consumerism in the United States just this year alone. And I want to share some facts with you that I, that I found. I actually found it difficult to narrow the focus and to whittle it down to these four common areas of consumerism in the U.S. We were inundated with information as we began to process together. But... There are four areas that we're going to talk about today. The first is that of credit cards. And in an article published by NerdWallets, 
as a culmination of all of 2017 statistics and data, it says that Americans' total credit card debt continues to climb, reaching an estimated $905 billion compared to a U.S. population of 323 million people. This does not include the 74.2 million of which are children under the age of 18 that are unable to obtain credits, which means that of just over 230 million people, we share collectively $905 billion of credit card debt. Long gone are the days where we would work to save in order to purchase outright something that we needed. And ever-present is the attitude of attaining credit so that we can purchase what we want here and now and worry about the ramifications later. Consumerism is the highest financially in the area of credit cards in the U.S. than in any other world or nation combined. Obesity is the number two that I want to talk about. Consumerism, according to a Renew Bariatric article published September 23rd, 2017, it says that research suggests that there are nearly 775 million obese people. And obese is described as having 30% body fat or more. So people with 30% or higher body fat 775 million obese people globally, 650 million obese adults, and approximately 125 obese children and teenagers on the planet. The majority of the obesity on the planet resides in just a few countries. In fact, the top 10 countries contribute to half the entire world's obesity. The world population is 7.5 billion people, and the world obesity is 775 million The top five most obese countries, and I was surprised by this, but number five is Mexico at 36 million people. Coming in at number four was Brazil at 42 million obese people. Number three is India with 65 and a half million obese people. I was really surprised by the second country globally that has the honor, I guess, uh, distinguished anyway, of obesity. It's China at 97 million obese people. And lo and behold, the great nation of the United States of America takes the top at 110 million obese adults and children. Our U.S. collective population is 323 million people living on the United States of American soil. And of the 323 million, one-third of all Americans is considered to have 30% or greater body fat. Long gone are the days of families that would collectively work together, churning soil and turning it over, putting down fertilizer that they were to, to create and planting crops and then harvesting those crops together where they work together to create a meal and sit down at the table to enjoy the meal. And we've replaced that work and that intention with an ever-present inundation of fast food because it goes right along with meeting the needs of uh, the third area of consumerism in the U.S., which is how we spend our time. We're too busy to sit down and eat a healthy home-cooked meal. We're, we're on the go, and so fast food is on the rise. Time is the third 
consumerism report that I looked at, and this is an MSN article printed April 5th, 2015, and here are four surprising facts about consumerism when it comes to time. Getting ready. Ladies, according to a study by body wash firm Skin Bliss, women will spend approximately 136 days of their lives in front of a mirror getting ready. 136 days, and some of the guys are saying, are you kidding me? She's just warming up. <laughs> Traffic time. A study conducted by Texas A&M University on annual mobility found that on average, an American spends 38 hours a year in traffic. This number can climb as high as 60 hours or more in higher populated communities like Los Angeles, Atlanta, and Washington, D.C., New York, San Francisco, Portland, Oregon. Uh, the third one, entitled Tuned In to Television. It says that watching television generally accounts for more than half of our leisure time. In other words, activity outside of sleeping and activity outside of eating and work, we spend about a third of our day with leisure time, and of that third, half of it is taken up by television. And if you calculate the low end of the national average, there's a median and there's a high end, but the low end of the national average is considered to be four hours a day watching television for everyone in your household. You will spend an approximate 11 years of your life in front of television. Now consider that approximated 11 years of your life to the national average of Americans' lifespan at 78 years. You rethink how you see television. The, the fourth one that I want to talk about is entitled Diet, Diet, Diet. A research by Kevin Doran, founder and head chef of Diet Chef, revealed that average person will spend 17 years of their life dieting. According to a study by Market Data Enterprises, Americans spend north of $60 billion annually in attempt to lose weight. Everything from paying for gym memberships and joining weight loss programs to nutrition supplements. $60 billion in 17 years collectively trying to lose weight. Here's one, parents, you'll love me for this. Video games. This study is five years old. In 2013, a study found that on the low average, a U.S. gamer over the age of 13 will spend 6.3 hours a week playing video games. That hour of 6.3 hours a week today is 6.3 hours a day. If you take the five-year-old statistic... 6.3 hours a week breaks down to 327.6 hours annually, which is the equivalent of eight full 40-hour work weeks. Two full working months playing video games every year. You take that, and in the end, it comes out to a collective of over three years of your life playing video games with zero return, except... You guys have some strong thumbs and great thumb-eye coordination. That doesn't include the money that we spend on gaming consoles and video games. Finally, I want to share with you some surprising consumerism facts on the church. And by church, this is representing Protestant evangelical churches spanning 1970 to today. In 1970, Americans attended church Sunday mornings on average 50 out of 52 Sundays a year. In addition to Sunday mornings, Americans attended Sunday night prayer service, midweek programs, home groups, 
and service projects. Today, the average, and this is by Kerry Newhoff, an article that was published just February 16th of this year. Kerry found that the average person in America is likely to attend church 1.67 times at all, not just on Sundays, of any involvement a month. When he did his research, he found that the three reasons, three top reasons why Americans stop attending church. Number one, I'm too busy, especially with my kids' sports and activities. We've moved away from community in, in, in our faith and moved into consumerism with sports. And I'm not here to lecture you. My son was in five states in the last three weeks playing soccer. I, I, I get this. Long gone are the days where our children are encouraged to play multiple sports, where we play guys, in particular for me, football in the fall, wrestling in the winter, and baseball and track and field in the spring. And now, if you're considered uh, above average in your sport, you're, in, you're, you're encouraged to be a part of an elite program which plays that sport, practices that sport year-round to the tune of tens of thousands of dollars. The second reason that people don't find time to go to church anymore is they say this, need to go to church to be a, a Christian. And I'm not going to argue that fact. Because we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace so that none of us can boast. But I will argue that if you want to honor God in every way that he commands us, then you need to be in Christian community. Hebrews 10.25 says, don't give up meeting as some are in the habit of doing, but continue to come together. Continue to meet, continue to gather. We are called to community. We're going to study that today as we jump into Acts chapter 2. The third reason that people give for no longer making church a priority in their life, the third and perhaps the most profound reason given why people do not make church a priority in their life, in quotations, is this. Uh, that church just didn't really do it for me. That church just didn't really do it for me. They have a failure to see direct benefits. I want you to take a look at this video. Previously on Church Hunters. This is your first church. This is Creekside First Baptist. Honestly, right up front, uh, didn't love the name. The Sunday morning experience was just a little too traditional. Hey guys, how we doing? Hey, good. Doing how are good, you? doing good. So I know you didn't love the traditional vibe of the last place, okay? Yeah. okay. But I think this church is really going to do it for you. Yeah. It takes relevance to a whole new level. Behind me, you will see molded clay, jar art, tapestry, canvas, mosaic wow. church. Mm, I love beautiful. it. Right? So you've heard of interdenominational. Mm -hmm. right. And you've heard of non-denominational. Mm -hmm. Well, this church identifies as interdenominational. Wow. wow. That's, that's perfect for it. us. It really is. But here's the kicker. A lot of celebrities go here. Yeah. What? Jeff Foxworthy. <laughs> we love him. Yep. We really do. Ben Higgins from ABC's The Bachelor. Perfect. Several Real Housewives. Ooh, and... Know. Usher even came here one time. Yeah. Shut up. <laughs> yeah, well, follow me. Come on. Let's do it. So refreshing. Honestly, that last trip was just way too traditional. It was yeah. too much. It was like we left there feeling convicted. Like, uh, ugh, right? Right. We're just, we're looking for more of a Tony Robbins type stuff. Like inspiration, like a TED Talk with a Bible verse. Yes. Oh, yes. Right? It's perfect here. We love it. It really is. We love it. Awesome. Cool. Well, you guys know a lot of contemporary pastors speak out of the Message Translation Bible. Mm -hmm. Right. Or this pastor speaks out of a brand new translation. It's the Tumblr Bible. Oh, Shut We love Tumblr, up. though. This is great. Wow. A lot of emojis, a lot of abbreviations. Oh, I couldn't ask for And how many seats in here? Oh, it is 6,000 altogether. Babe, wow. 6,000. i got to be in this worship band. 
imagine me up on that jumbotron mid guitar solo. Do you know how many Instagram likes you get? Oh. oh my gosh. We find it hard to find a church right now because I grew up Catholic. I grew up Baptist, so. So like we we drink. Yeah, but just in private. I mean, obviously, you get it. Basically, in terms of, like, worship, I think we're looking for, like, a Jesus culture type feel. Oh, I right. love them. At Hillsong, obviously. Oh, leave you to the cross? Hillsong is great. Like a Bethel minus the spontaneous yeah. stuff. Yeah. Just for me, I connect in worship more when the leader is attractive. Personally, I'm a Carrie Job guy. Oh, okay. Well, she's married. Um, so is Christian Stanfield. Wow. So one of my personal favorite things about this church is the service times. Okay. There's an 8.30, a 10, a 1 o'clock, a 5.30, and even a 7 o'clock service. Oh, there's nothing around like 2-ish? Yeah, for us, for what we need, 2, 2.15 is best. Yes. Uh, how many songs do they do during worship? Usually five, five and a half, depending on where the spirit leads. Oh, wow, babe, is that, is that a, a lot? lot? Well, if that's too that much for you, like... they have a program here called the Worship Assist Program. Okay. So if you ever get tired during worship, an intern will come out and just hold your arms up. You just keep worshiping the King of Glory. Just like that. Wow. I love it. Oh, you can still look super spiritual. Huh? And my arms get so tired from yoga. Oh, same. I actually like this church. I think we can make it work. It was all right. I mean, it was it was good. But pers- like, I emailed the pastor, and he didn't immediately respond. So uh, we're taking these vessels elsewhere. Parody, but make no mistake about it. There is an enemy that threatens to destroy community, and that adversary is consumerism. And instead of the centrality of Christ in the center of community, all things in consumerism hinge on the center of consumerism, which is me. The one common denominator across the board that is robbing us of experiencing authentic Christian community is me. We approach our faith like we approach our lives. What's in it for me? What do I get out of it? What, what's convenient for me? What matters to me? What makes sense to me? And, and I believe with all my heart that the enemy has taken what God meant for good in the way that we love our children and honor our, our, our other activities, and he's turned it into a negative thing. He has a, a way of doing that. He comes like a thief in the night to steal, kill, and destroy, and he manipulates good, and he uses it for evil. And one of the things that he uses is our God-ordained, our God-identity, our God-qualifying, that we are called to community or common unity, and we view our faith, and we view our faith gathering through the lenses of consumerism with the centrality of me in the middle. And today, I hope to challenge us and encourage us and educate us and inspire us to rethink Christian community and our responsibility and our response to today's message. Father, I pray that as we jump now into the time of your word that you would enlighten our minds and encourage our hearts Father, I pray that as we jump in, that you would go before us and that you would ready us to encounter you and that you would lead us to where you want us to go. <clears throat> God, I pray that as I preach today, I would preach with uh, authenticity and with integrity, and that as we lift up your name collectively, you would draw all people unto yourself. And Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of our hearts would be holy and pleasing to you, God. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. In Acts, Jesus 
has spent 40 days post-resurrection, both physical and spiritual death with the disciples, continuing to teach, continuing to love, and continuing to perform miraculous signs and wonders and presenting the gospel in, in human form through conquering of death in physical form, which we're actually going to celebrate here in just a couple of weeks. And as he does in Acts 1.8, Jesus gives a final command to the disciples and he says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And then he ascends into to heaven and the disciples collectively gather together, the 11 of them, in the upper room and they start to talk about what Jesus meant and what to do next, what next steps to take. And they agree mutually that they need to seek out an individual that meets the qualifications of an apostle. You see, there's an 11 appointed uh, apostles but the 12th Judas Iscariot sold himself out, sold his soul for 30 pieces of silver, and then in shame hung himself. And so they consider the community amongst them, and they narrow it down to two men who seem to meet the criteria of an apostle that Jesus had appointed, and they cast lots, and Matthias is chosen of the, the two, and he is given the responsibility of the apostolic ministry, which we'll talk about here in a moment. From there, they collectively gather and they pray and they wait. And they pray and they wait until the Holy Spirit descends upon them and floods them where they're at, capturing their hearts, moving their minds, moving their bodies. And each one of them is given a spiritual gift based on the appropriation uh, and the identification of the Holy Spirit in each one of their lives. And then a, a language comes over each one of them. And the apostle Peter goes out and he begins to proclaim the gospel. He preaches the first sermon of the early establishment in the church. He preaches to multiple, multiple regions, and there's all kinds of nations, tribes, and tongues represented, and Peter's preaching in a way that is understandable to all ears, and everybody looks at this and said, how can this be? This man, he doesn't speak our language, yet we understand and identify clearly what he's saying. This guy must be drunk. I mean, this guy's got a big mouth. He's got a reputation for talking a lot, but he must have some liquid courage because this is really crazy, and Peter says, you guys are crazy. It's 9 a.m. Do, do you pretend to think I'm already drunk. It's only nine. I'm drunk on the spirit. The Lord is moving in great ways and he shares the gospel with incredible conviction. And that day, the Lord adds to their numbers at the response of the gospel, 3,000 who were saved from that region. The number of saved followers of the way moved from 120 to 3,120. And then they begin to practice common unity. They begin to put into practice all that Jesus had instructed them. And we're going to study nine characteristics. And I hope to leave us with three concrete instructions at the end. Nine characteristics of what common unity looks like and three concrete instructions of how we can put it into practice as we grow stronger in our faith. Would you read with me Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 42. Luke, the author, records that all the believers, this is representative of all 3,120, not just the original 12 or the 120 followers of the way, but now with the 3,000 added, that all 3,120 people devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I want to encourage you to circle the word devoted. We're going to come back full circle and we're going to investigate what devotion looks like. But in other words, they were committed they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching. And some people ask what the apostles' teaching is. And I think we, we make it something that it's not, or we, we, we super spiritualize it. But it simply is this. I believe that the apostolic ministry is still very relevant today. I believe in the apostleship still today. Not in that there's an appointed apostle, but that the Holy Spirit gives the gift of apostolic ministry. 
The appointed apostles were the 12 that Jesus had done life and ministry with. And there's a a portion about midway through Jesus' life and ministry where he instructs the disciples to go out two by two and to present the gospel to the communities surrounding them. This invitation for the disciples to go out is the introduction of the apostolic ministry. The word apostle, it means to be an ambassador or a spokesperson on behalf of Jesus. It's like a notary public signing over the power of attorney for somebody else to exercise authority in that individual's name. It's also a visual image of a trumpet. In order for breath to move through the instrument, you need a mouthpiece so that you can blow into in in order to make the music. And so apostolic ministry is really... It's the breath of the Holy Spirit coming out in, 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 in for the betterment of the body. These individuals committed themselves to the apostles' teaching. And what were the apostles teaching? The apostles weren't just teaching what was relevant to them in that day. The apostles were teaching from the Pentateuch, their religious traditions and upbringing. The apostles were teaching what they had learned directly from Jesus as they sat under him as their rabbi for three years. And the apostles were teaching what the Holy Spirit would, in, would, would, would share with them, would lead them in their spirit and in their hearts. They were sharing the fullness of the word of God, the complete revelation of the word of God up until that point. It said that all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the first characteristic. And they devoted themselves to fellowship. Fellowship, we've, I think we've made that something that it's maybe not intended to be. And so let me give us a working definition of fellowship. Fellowship is little more, and it's really profound when you consider it, but it's little more than doing life and ministry together. It's actually not a churchy word at all. Fellowship is, is, a, is, is a word that we get that is supposed to drive us into understanding that our lives really aren't just about us, but that we are called to do life and ministry collectively together. So now these apostles and these disciples, these 3,120 believers were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper. And I want to share with you that the New Living Translation, to the best of my knowledge, is the only translation of the Bible that actually includes that explanation of the Lord's Supper. And I believe that the reason that they do that is because Jesus at the Passover, what we know as the Eucharist or the Last Supper, Jesus is standing and he's in, standing in celebration and in religious rites with his apostles. And there they share a common cup and they share a bread and they share this meal. And there were psalms and hymns that they would sing and there were prayers that they would pray as religious practice annually. But Jesus takes and he transforms and he says, as often... As you come together in my name, do this in remembrance of me. So it moves away from a religious ritual and into a lifestyle, which is why I really appreciate that the New Living Translation includes in here that not only did they invite people into their homes for common unity, but when you invite believers into your home and you dedicate that time to the Lord and you you commit it to him, that you are actually experiencing believers' communion where you remember the sacrifice that Jesus made in our place. As a church collectively, we intentionally try to celebrate communion as an act of worship, and we try to do it about once a month, but we don't want to make it a religious uh, ritual because I believe it loses its intention and its deep-seated meaning. And really, I want to encourage you to experience communion with Christ and other believers every day. So these, these early adopters of the faith had committed themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And prayer is the response of a relationship. 
Prayer is communication with God where we seek to hear and to be heard. Prayer is a, is a response to adoration where we declare out loud the incredibleness of God, the amazingness of God, the wonders of God, and it's also where we align our desires with the word, will, and way of God. It's a response of a relationship. In verse 43, it moves away from just actions and into attitudes, and we're going to see attitudes mentioned three times here. We've been given now five characteristics of Christian community, but now we're going to see some attitudes. Lean in and listen into these attitudes. It says in verse 43, a deep sense of awe came over them all. This word awe, it means reverent fear or adoration. They collectively got together and as they experienced, not just witnessed, but as they experienced the apostles' teaching, as they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, as they were devoted to sharing in meals, as they were devoted to inviting people into their home, including the Lord's Supper, as they were devoted to prayer, they experienced what we're going to learn here in just a moment, miracles, signs, and wonders. And because of what God was doing throughout their community, there was an attitude of awe Amongst them, they looked at what was taking place, not as commonplace, but as a miracle of God. And I want to ask us to consider this morning, when was the last time we looked at the movement of God in what I truly believe is a revitalization in our church, and we had an absolute awe? I find it hard to walk through the halls of our church. I find it hard to drive onto our campus and think on what the Lord has done inside of just a year here at our church together. Three, excuse me, 233 salvations, 600 Bibles given out, all of these 60 plus people baptized, children dedicated. And even today, we have 24 youth, high school, that are in Omaha, inner city Omaha, with Urban Plunge, working to be the literal hands and feet of Christ in our community. Now, I'm going to talk about that here in a moment. But when I, consider, when I consider the revival of what the Lord is doing through the Holy Spirit and the presence of our community, I have a sense of awe. There's a deep sense of awe, a reverent fear, and I can't but help praise God and worship God and thank God and, and be afraid not afraid of, of, of anything that man can do, but man, just afraid of, Lord, what happens if your presence leaves? I'm just so blown away by you. I think we are called to come into the presence of God in common unity with a deep sense of awe, of reverent fear, of adoration for God and who he is and what he's doing. I invite you into a common unity of awe, sovereign, or excuse me, reverent fear and adoration of what God is doing. And it said, a deep sense of awe came over them all, verse 43, and all the apostles, now this is the 11, not the 3,120, performed many miraculous signs and wonders. Church, I want to talk to you about miraculous signs and wonders. There's a, a whole theology that believes that miracles, signs, and wonders ceased at the day of Pentecost. It's called a dispensationalist approach to theology. But my problem with that is that's not at all what I see in Scripture. Because some 30 years after Jesus' ascension and the uh, Spirit descending upon the disciples and the apostles performing miracle signs and wonders, the Apostle Paul is going to write numerous churches in the epistles about the miracle signs and wonders and the acts of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And the thing of it is, is as I consider with awe what God is doing in our church, I am privy to what I know as miracles, signs, and wonders taking place in our community, even within our church. Just this last week alone, marriages were restored in this church. 
Marriages that were they were, they, were, they were depraved. They were destined for divorce. Couples who had come in and just, month, just, just a month ago had come in and said, I don't want to be married anymore. I'm not interested in making this work. God's got to get a hold of our marriage. He's got to change our hearts. He's got to do something because I don't want to stay married to this person. And just this last week, sat in my office, wrecked, wrecked by the power and the presence of God, broken over what God was doing, completely separated, living apart, talking about divorce, looking at all the options options and saying, God got a hold of us. We're back together. I cannot explain the power and the presence of God. It has to be a miracle. Amen. It has to be a miracle. And that's one representation of countless marriages that I know that have been restored under the ministry of God in this church. I know of physical miracles that are represented even in this building this morning where God is moving. And the reason that God allowed, Jesus said, don't you think it's interesting? Jesus said, these things I've done, but greater things will you do. So if Jesus told the disciples that they would do greater things, and if the Holy Spirit comes on them and 30 some years later, we're seeing miracles, signs, and wonders, who are we to put God in a box because we don't understand it? Somebody asked me recently, Pastor, why do you think that the U.S. doesn't experience miracles like underdeveloped countries? Well, because in the U.S. we've got a lot of options and a lot of ideas. In underdeveloped countries, if God doesn't show up, they're host. They have a faith that says, God, if you don't show up, we got nothing. We've got a faith that says, yeah, God's an option. It's consumerism. It's about me and what I can do. When we're called the common unity that if God doesn't show up, we're hosed. I toned down the message and I used host in place of what I had in my head. Thank you, God, for a holy filter this morning. <laughs> they perform miracle signs and wonders. And let me explain. That's what I was going to say. Let me explain why they did this. Miracle signs and wonders was a physical manifestation, a manifestation of the gospel. The disciples were sent out to present the gospel, but most people aren't interested in the gospel until they have a need, a need met. In fact, I want to argue, in fact, I want to encourage you to study the ministry of Jesus. And you show me a place where Jesus saves somebody before he meets a physical need. He met the physical needs of communities. And as a byproduct of meeting their needs, the miracles, signs, and wonders, they were open to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ in their lives. We have got miracles, signs, and wonders taking place right now where 24 students are in urban uh, 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 Omaha, North Omaha right now. Yesterday alone, they prepared 2,000 meals and took it out into the streets to feed the homeless in the frigid weather and air. And they are they're working in these homeless communities to be the literal hands and feet of Jesus. I want to tell you that I think the greatest presentation of the gospel has less to do with our words and a whole lot more to do with how we live our lives. We are seeing miracles and signs and wonders as we practice common unity, get together based on the centrality of Christ and not the consumerism where everything hinges on me in the middle. Miracles, signs, and wonders are being performed. Verse 44 says, and all the believers, I want to just point this out. The reason that Luke keeps on mentioning all, that it's, in, it's inclusive, is he's screaming at us, Community! common unity. The apostle Paul says in humility, consider others better than yourselves. It is an act of common unity. And so it says all the believers met together in one place. Church, this right here is maybe perhaps one of the greatest representations of corporate worship together. This right here is the living definition and explanation of why you can be a Christian, but you need to be in community with one another. Why? Why? Because God says so. 
God demonstrated it in the early church, in the establishment of the early church. It wasn't just enough for them to claim the name of Christ. They were called to common unity together, to do life and ministry together, to experience miracles, signs, and wonders together, to pray together, to eat together, inviting others into their homes. But it doesn't stop there. They move away from a myopic lifestyle, a consumerism lifestyle, from, uh, from a singular and into a plural. Let me explain. It says, all of them met together in one place, and we're going to talk some more about that in a minute. And they shared everything they had. What a concept we don't understand today, if I can just be brutally honest. It said they sold their property and possessions, and they shared their money with those in need. Oh, I, want to, I want to explain why this matters. I mean, it matters for a lot of reasons, but this is God, through the early establishment of the church, paralleling a practice of the Jews from very early on in what is known as the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee represents the seventh year that every seven years in the cycle, if anybody had a debt, that debt was canceled. If anybody owned property that once belonged to another man, that property was freed up and given back to the original owner. That anybody who owned a slave was given that, they would give a slave a right of freedom, a right of freedom bill where they could then take papers and walk freely as free men. That all debts were canceled. And the reason that we celebrate the year of Jubilee is twofold. Number one, it's the representation of what Jesus Christ did on the cross and his death and resurrection, both physically and spiritually, that all of our debts are canceled. But number two, it's a physical manifestation that says, in all things, none of it's ours. We're just called to be good stewards of it. So hold on loosely to it. In the same way that the year of Jubilee represents that every seven years they would give it back to its original owner, we are called to give back to God what's his. And we do that by common unity. We do that by meeting the needs of the orphans and the widows. We do that by selling our possessions and giving to those in need. In Acts chapter 4, there's a great example of Joseph who went and sold a lot of land and came back and gave the money to the apostles. And the apostles divided it evenly among those who had need in the community. The disciples here didn't consider their own things their own things, but they moved from, an, from, a, from a singular to a plural. They moved from an individual to a collective. It says all the believers sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. Verse 46 is a, it's a reiteration. It really drives home the point. He's going to make three points that he's already made. That the disciples worshiped together at the temple each day. Worship. Worship's a lifestyle. If I could just be so plain to say it that way. Next Sunday night, we're going to do a worship night here. We're going to play music. And we're going to have some testimonies. And we're going to do some cool things in celebration and adoration to God next Sunday night. Next Sunday morning, the spiritual discipline that we're going to discover together is the spiritual discipline of worship. But here's what I want to share with you about worship. When we come together, and make no mistake about it, we are called and commanded to come together as a common unity or a community every week. Our collective worship is a byproduct of the individual worship that should be taking place in our lives every day in our homes and in our communities. We come together mutually to encourage each other uh, based on how we had worshipped throughout the week. 
how we lived our lives as an attitude and an act of worship. And if you don't believe me, read John chapter 4, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman who argues with Jesus. You guys, you guys say that you worship up there. We, we say we worship over here. You worship on that mountain, and we worship over here in Gerasim, and you guys worship this way, and we worship this way. And Jesus says, woman, believe me, a time is coming, and in fact, the time is here now where true worshipers, authentic worshipers, the kind of worshipers that the Father finds pleasure in will worship no longer in religion, but in a right relationship. In other words, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And it's not about the mountain. It's not about the location. It is about a lifestyle. Church, I cannot think of a greater representation. This is a big party. This should be a big party every Sunday. So when we come together collectively as a community to celebrate, why does it look like we're at a funeral? No, I'm serious. Like we experience the miracle signs and wonders throughout the week. We experience common unity. We should be anyway, inviting people into our homes, inviting people into our lives, and being so, uh, so, so presumptuous as to invite ourselves into their lives to meet the physical needs of the least of these, the marginalized, misrepresented, mistreated, and misplaced, to care for the needs of the least of these. And when we do that, when we're worshiping, when we're declaring that God is awesome and powerful and amazing throughout the week individually, we come together collectively and we share stories. That's one of the four core values that drive us. We exist to be a community where people encounter Jesus and their lives are changed forever, but their encounter shouldn't be, we love you, Lord, and we're so hungry. I hope pastor didn't drink coffee today because we'll be here until three. I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but that was good. Now, come on, listen to me. People, people go through the motions out there. When they come in here, they don't know it, but this is a community where they can encounter Jesus and their lives can be transformed forever. And one of the four core values that drives us is as a church, we gather. We gather to exalt the name of Jesus. We gather to encourage one another and we gather to equip the believers to do the life and ministry God's called us to. We are called as a community to worship, to worship authentically and to worship intentionally. And it says they, they worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. Church, ah, man, I, oh, I know that one of the reasons that you don't invite people over to your house is because you're too busy with other things to keep your house clean. And it's really embarrassing when somebody just randomly shows up. We did three years of life and ministry in North Carolina. That's a way of life there. Yeah, but I just keep your house clean in North Carolina or not care that people are about to walk into your mess. They did life and ministry together. We, if we are not inviting people into common unity throughout the week to come in and experience life with us, you don't have to put on the dog and pony show. You know what I'm saying? In the South, they say, put on the dog. You don't have to do that. People don't want you to do that. Oh, you need to invite them to come and experience common unity with you. Come on over for a meal. That's not threatening. Come on over for a meal. Okay. Invite them into your house. Get to know, ask questions. Oh, my wife and I went to Bed Bath & Beyond last night. For me. That's a true story. They have an air freshener I love for my truck. That's weird. I just, weird. I normally reserve this for third service, but uh, I got talking to Ashley, who's a cashier there, 25 years old from Atlanta, Georgia. 
uh, African-American gal who just graduated with her degree in medical resourcing. And as I was talking to her, I know that she's got an, uh, an interview next week with Medicare and she'd like to work there. She's incredibly introverted. She told me doesn't even like people, yet she's in retail at Bed Bath & Beyond. It makes complete sense. And we began talking and Ashley said to me, you're weird. <laughs> and I said, I said, come again. And she said, you ask a lot of questions and you really care. You've remembered everything I've told you. Because my wife Stacy walked up and I said, hey, Stacy, this is my friend Ashley. Ashley, you know, I just kind of went on. And, and, I, and, and, and then, you know what she said to me as I left? Are you, are you a Christian? I said, am I ever? <laughs> and she printed off on the registry a piece of paper and she ripped it off and she said, would you write down the name of your church? I think I'd like to come. I did was invite myself into her life and the funny thing is I mean we I do it all the time and not because I'm not that's because I'm nosy like I'm not saying that to celebrate me it's because I ask a lot of questions I'm a curious fella and I don't I told Ashley I said Ashley I've heard about introverts like you she said what do you mean I said I don't know what that's like I'm gonna pray I'm gonna I'm pray for you I'm gonna pray for you Ashley pray for you they worshiped together at the temple. They met in homes in the Lord's Supper and they shared their meals together with great joy and generosity. This is an attitude, joy and generosity. When we sell our possessions and give to the least of these, those who have the greatest need, we are called to do it with joy and generosity. We are called to do it with sincerity to meet the needs of the least of these. Why? Because Jesus gave everything for us. And God has called us to be stewards of what we have, not owners, not possessors. Nowhere in scripture do you see that we're possessors. We are called to be stewards. And the best way that we can steward what God is giving us is to hold on to it loosely and give it to those who have a greater need than we do. Oh, come on, church. I am preaching really good this morning. Man, we have to have a right attitude about it. The Lord is rocking me in this series. Like literally, it's as though I'm sitting out there with y'all, which I have been several times this week, and listen to the sermons. Uh, amazing communicators have given these messages. But it's as though the Lord is speaking directly in my heart. And so I'm actually, believe it or not, putting into practice everything we're teaching. It's weird. Uh, so over the last week, I've been fasting from television. Thank you, Chris Harrison. <laughs> I've not turned on a TV in a week. And you know what? I don't miss it. Let me tell you what else. It's kind of a big deal this week for me because if you know anything about me, you know I have a little bit of an affinity for wrestling. I wrestled from a little kid all the way into college. I coached wrestling for 14 years all the way up into the NCAA ranks. This week is the NCAA championships for wrestling, team and individual. And last night as I was going to bed, I thought to myself, I completely forgot that was going on this week. And I went to bed. After having a conversation with my wife, who has eyes, as Chris described, and I got really good. I've had more energy this week. Church, I've gotten more accomplished this week. Legitimately, I hate to admit this. I've gotten more accomplished this week, projects that I've been putting off around the house, and spent more time with my kids playing games, tickling them, running around, and doing things that need to get done than I have in months because I turned off the TV. That's a fact. In my bedroom, I literally unplugged the outlet. It's amazing what the Lord is doing in my life from getting rid of that stupid thing that I've spent 11 years of my life in front of by the time I die. The second thing, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Ike talked about secrecy and giving. And this week, the Lord, the Lord put me to the test and said, Andrew, are you serious? You have an opportunity to give to a family in need. 
some extenuated circumstances beyond their control and there's tremendous need. This individual made themselves uh, very humbly, came into my office broken, embarrassed, and expressed their need. And I called Stacy and I said, honey, I really feel like the Lord is calling us to, to give $500 to this family. And she didn't even ask questions. She said, okay, I'll write a check, come pick it up. And I reached out to this person and I gave him the news. I said, go to my house and meet my wife and we've got a gift for you. I don't ever want you to tell anybody uh, that we gave it and I don't want you to bring it up because this is a gift. We really felt like the Lord is calling us to do this. And here's the thing that's beautiful. I didn't do it begrudgingly. I didn't think about what I could buy with that money and I didn't look at it as a bill, that, something, some consumer product that I owed on. I looked at it as an opportunity that the Lord has blessed us to give and so we gave freely and generously. I'm not telling you this to applaud me, guys. I'm telling you this, that, that uh, when, when, when we actually live out these practices and, practices and principles God's calling us to, it will fundamentally change everything about our faith. It will fundamentally change everything about our faith. It is so rich and rewarding. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes with the Lord's Supper and they shared meals with great joy and generosity. Verse 47, listen to this. All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. I want to share with you this again. All the while they were praising God, they were giving and, and acting in common unity as an act of worship, giving God the glory for it. And as a byproduct, they were enjoying the goodwill of all the people. Up until this point, they said all the believers all the 3,120. But now it's recorded in scripture that when we practice common unity, we move away from being or exclusive and into being inclusive. When we live out the gospel, it will have an, a community-wide impact because of the way that they were being generous and loving one another and sharing one another and worshiping and giving God all the glory. The community at large took notice and because the community at large took notice of how they were living their lives, the Bible says that every single day the Lord added to their numbers those who were being saved. And I am absolutely and fundamentally convinced and convicted that the reason churches are not seeing salvations is because they do not practice godly common unity. Not just within the four walls of the church. I'm not saying they don't preach well. I'm not saying they don't play well. I'm not saying that they don't do ministry well. I am saying that the church collectively, when we practice common unity, the community takes notice and they want what we have. They want to be a part of it. Not my words, not my idea, but straight from the word of God, sola scriptura, this is how the word moves. That when we live the gospel, he is faithful to fulfill his promises. That none should perish, but that all should come to the saving knowledge of him. Three concrete ideas that I want to give us in order for us to practice stronger community. All straight from this message. The first, I ask you to circle the word devoted. The first is that in order for us to experience community, we have to be committed. We can't look at being a part of the body of believers as a matter of convenience. If you can't get here more than 1.67 times a month for any activity, I think it's time for you to really reconsider what you need to give up in order for you to live out your faith in community with others. If you can't invite people into your home to share a meal and invest in their life, I think you need to reevaluate what's important to you and start giving up the things that don't matter and start, and start making a, a commitment to live life with others, life and ministry. And if you can't sell your possessions and give to those who have need. Do you know one of the other stats that I found interesting is that uh, just five years ago, women had eight outfits, blouse, 
uh, slacks, shoes, and accessories that, that they had, eight, eight, eight complete collection. Today, women have over 30 complete outfits. We spend over $1 billion a year in accessories. But we can't take time to sell what we have, the junk sitting around, to give to the least of these. Come on, we need to do better than that, church. We've got to do better than that. If you're not giving to the Lord, you're robbing him. I mean, it's literally an act of robbery. God's freely given to you, and it's the year of Jubilee, and he tells you to, to celebrate by, by giving it all back. Come on, church. We've got to get better at this. We've got to be committed to common unity. We've got to be committed to each other. We've got to be committed to the apostles' teaching. We've got to be committed to sharing meals together, including the Lord's Supper. We've got to be committed to corporate worship together, collectively coming together. We've got to be committed to the second key characteristic, which is contribution. Every believer, both the original 120 as well as the 3,000 that came into faith, all contributed. It said that they all met together. They all sold their possessions. They all gave to those who had need. They all came together collectively. They all worshiped. They all worked together. Every one of us needs to be contributing. If we're not contributing, we're consuming. I really hate to say it that way because I know it's not going to feel good to hear it. But if you're not a contributing member of your community, if you're not a contributing member to the community, the, char- the, the, the ecclesia, the gathering, the body, then you're a consumer and consumerism is based on me. It moves from the centrality of Christ into me being the center of all things. We've got to be committed to our faith and we've got to be contributing to the betterment of the body of believers. And then finally, we've got to be giving out invitations. You look, when they were inviting themselves into people's homes and when they were inviting others into their homes, when they were inviting others to experience common unity, lives were changed and daily the Lord added to their numbers those who were being saved. And so a few things I want to say as we wrap up quickly. Uh, First is, I was talking to our staff. Uh, We have an amazing team of leaders and we were in our staff development time this last week and we were just talking again about the, the uh, the amazing percentage of new people in our church. And we're finding it very difficult to connect with everybody because we don't know you're here. Like we know you're here because we have ushers that count, but we don't necessarily know you and we want to know you and your story. And so if you're here and you feel like you're just not a part of the community, I want to tell you that that's not our intention. We want to know you, but part of that is you have to make yourself known. At the end of most rows in front of you are a few cards. One of them says, I'm new. In a really practical way, for you to make yourself known to us is by filling out this I'm new card. You can include whatever information you're comfortable with, but we want to know you're here. And when we want to, we want to know you're here, we want to contact you. If you fill this out, I promise you, we'll contact you. And we also want to get to know your story. We want to know you. The second card that I want to introduce is what's called Next Steps. This is about contributing. This is about contributing. No longer just sitting here on Sunday mornings as a consumer with me at the center, but with Christ at the center, contributing to the betterment of the body in our community as a whole. And, and so here on this Next Steps card, you can put your name and whatever information you're comfortable giving. It's helpful if you give us some way to contact you, just for the record. But then it gives you several opportunities to get involved, to contribute to the, to the body. Finally, church, I want to invite all of you to pick up this card that you got when you came in. And if you didn't get it, it's because you're sitting on it. And so pick it up and, and let, me, let me invite you to stand up. Can I invite all of you to stand up with me, please? Stand with me and we're going to close this out together. We're going to close this out together with, with this challenge, with this thought, with this idea, with this. I want every one of you to think about one person that you need to invite. 
not to church, but into community. I want to give out our Easter message right now. You ready? This is not an excuse for you not to come in two weeks. You need to be here. But I want to tell you because it's imperative that you know what I'm going to be sharing with our community. In two weeks, we're starting a brand new series entitled Enough. And here it is. Here's the entire message. You don't have to be good enough because God is enough. You don't have to be good enough because God is enough. You and I do not have to be good enough because God is enough. And in two weeks, I'm going to preach the lights out of this building with that message that we don't have to be good enough because God is enough. And my challenge to you is not a challenge for me, but straight from the word of God. And that is that you invite somebody into community with you. Invite somebody to come to church with you. Statistics prove that not just Facebook and and an in-person invitation, but 80% statistics prove that 8 out of 10 people who receive a, a personal invitation from somebody will attend church with them at least one time if every one of us invites somebody we'll pack this place out on Easter Sunday and they're going to hear the gospel but I hope before they hear the gospel they see the gospel lived out in how you live your life in common unity Lord thank you for this morning thank you for this opportunity thank you for this message God thank you thank you that you call us into common unity thank you for the privilege that I have to preach your word and I pray that it would not fall on deaf ears Lord but that you would move in us and through us have your being in us and God as we are faithful to living out common unity and the representation of the gospel I pray that you would make your kingdom come this side of heaven and advance your name Jesus